You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Well, let's take a look at page 40 in your notes. Some of the questions to consider. Concerning parables and allegory. And I'm going to go back here and get what I didn't get when I should have gotten it. A similitude is essentially the same as a parable. True or false? True? True? Remember the difference between a similitude and a parable? It's not much. We saw that list in the back, and they're almost identical. A similitude appeals to common knowledge or common standards, and often it's, it's, it's uh, stated something like, what man of you, if you uh, had a flat tire, wouldn't pull over and fix it alongside the highway, that type of thing. Uh, common knowledge, common uh, standards. And the other thing that's mentioned also is that the, uh, the similitude tends to use present tense verbs, whereas a parable tends to look back as it tells a story. A man went on a journey, and so it tends to look in the past. But that's really, they're very, very similar. One purpose for a parable is to conceal truth from unbelievers. That's true. And flip side of that coin is it can be used to reveal truth to faith, as we're going to see as we look down here in the case of David. A highly educated preacher will always get the intended point of a passage. Yeah, highly education, right? Remember, Bill Clinton, before he was uh, governor of, um, uh, I almost said Australia, Arkansas, he was, uh, and before he was president, he was a Rhodes Scholar, right? Very smart guy, very smart. Pete Buttigieg, before he was the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, and before he was secretary of transportation, Rhodes Scholar. Brilliant people, right? But that doesn't always uh, fare well when it comes to understanding spiritual truth. The application of Matthew 15, verses 14 and 15, is don't follow false teachers. That's one application. Remember, observation, interpretation, there's a single interpretation, but there can be multiple applications. So that's certainly one of the applications from that passage. A parable is a kind of story that should be interpreted allegorically. False. Because allegorical interpretation, and remember, we're distinguishing between an allegory in Scripture um, and an and allegorical interpretation. Allegorical interpretation is you impose a meaning from outside the text onto the text and that it wasn't there in the first place. Parables usually teach a single truth, though they may have many details. That's true, yeah. And then, read Second Samuel 12, 1 through 13. Let's, let's turn there in our Bibles. 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 13. Nathan, the prophet, confronts David concerning his sin with Bathsheba. And we're looking at the value of how Nathan confronted David. How did he confront him? One of the things that... um, Here we go. There we go. Second Samuel 12, 1 through 13. And very interesting, chapters that should be uh, 11, chapters 11 and 12 combined actually form a chiastic structure. And with the focal point, verse 11, 27b, the last verse in chapter 11, and the end of it, what it, where it says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. That's the focal point of that. But then we're going to focus in on chapter 12, 1 through 13. 
And it reads this way. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. What's going on here? What do you see about how the prophet Nathan approached David concerning his sin? What are some observations that you have? Yeah, he, uh, he, he approached him indirectly with the parable. Um, one thing very, very important about this, very important, look at the first oh, four words or so in, in 12.1. What's it say? And the Lord sent Nathan. In the area of confrontation, it's very important to uh, make sure that the Lord sends you to do that, that you're in the will of God when you do that. You can go back into the New Testament even and see some of the principles involved in church discipline uh, like uh, Galatians 6. Uh, If anyone among you is overtaken in a sin, you, plural, who are spiritual, restore such a one. So it's important to be in the will of God to do this. Um, for a couple of reasons. In his case, here's a prophet confronting the king about the king's sin. All right. Now that's in the will of God. So where is where's the moral authority in that situation? Who's the highest moral authority in this story? God. Next after God, king. who gets confronted by who? The king is confronted by the prophet. The prophet brings the word of God to people from God, right? So he has the high, a higher moral authority in this case. But David is still the king. And the king is the judge, and the king had his life in his hand. He very well could have uh, uh, taken him out. And certainly there was king's presented throughout the Old Testament. Many, many of them were very evil who would have done that, would have just executed him like that, uh, especially some of the non-Jewish kings like the uh, a Persian king or a Medo-Persian king. You would probably not even open your mouth in front of those guys for anything, especially to confront them in their sin. Um, and you remember what happened to John the Baptist. But that's that's part of this picture is that he engaged him indirectly with a parable. And remember, there's an issue here, and the issue is David's sin. And I drew that squiggly line uh, to represent his sin. But when Nathan brings the parable, the parable is cast alongside so that you get a picture of what the issue is. The parable really is kind of irrelevant, right? It's designed to confront the individual with the truth of their situation and force them into making a judgment. They have to make some sort of, they're driven to the point of making some sort of a judgment in this situation. Um, Anything else you see there? Well, one of the things that you see in this story, and this we're kind of dealing with part of it here. If you go back in time, and it's true in life too, normally an event like with Bathsheba just doesn't happen immediately and cataclysmically. There is something that takes place, maybe a lot of things that take place that lead up to it. There are precursors to it. Um, many scholars feel that one of the precursors to uh, to David's sin was uh, the issue with the young women parading around when he came back from from battle 
Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Here's another one. Go back to chapter 11, verse 1. He's the king, right? Which means he's the commander-in-chief, right? Which means he is to lead his army. Verse 1 of chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, his commanding general, and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. What's wrong with that picture? As they used to say, he's uh, in the rear with the gear and the beer. Right? Why isn't he out? What's what's going on here? And then look at verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Okay, and you know the rest of the story there. Well, what's he doing in Jerusalem? He's supposed to be out in the field with the with the troops. Something's not right here. And he is set up for this whole thing um, by his own lack of diligence to what he's supposed to be doing. So that's my point. There's always some kind of a, a precursor. Not always. These things might happen in a cataclysmic event. Um but more often than not, there's a there's a buildup to it. There's something that doesn't go quite right. There are decisions made to put an individual in proximity for this type of a, an event. And um, David pretty much was had set himself up for this. So what else do we see? Anything else? Any other observations? What about the application? Nathan, the prophet... And we're going to be talking about what a prophet does. Prophet does a variety of things. He confronts people in their sin like this. He, he foretells the future, predicts the future, and he's going to do that as well with David. But anything else you see? What about the application? You are the man. He had to tell that story and get him engaged in the story, and he got his anger up with this. He does, yes, he does, eventually, through that, through that confrontation. That was what, that was the, the application that drove him to make his confession, as we're going to see. But notice his, notice his, his, um, self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is very blinding. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Well, what that man did was not a capital crime. What David did was a capital crime. David could have been executed for what he did with Bathsheba and with arranging the murder of her husband, Uriah. Um, there was no sacrifice for that in, in, in the Levitical system. He could have been executed. And that's why um, it would be well worth your time to read Psalm 32, which is a psalm that, that really pictures David in his uh, despondency in the period of time that went by before he actually confessed this sin. And then, of course, Psalm 51, great psalm of confession. But what is the remedy when you have offended a holy God and the penalty is death, the wages of sin is death, and you don't have a sacrifice that will satisfy a, an enraged God? What do you do? You do what David did. Be merciful to me, the sinner. You cast yourself on the mercy of God. And that's exactly what he does. There was no, he, he couldn't take a sacrifice to the temple and give it to the priest and have that sacrifice, uh, offered up for his sin, what it was. There was no sacrifice for that. That was a capital crime. He could have been executed. He cast himself on the mercy of God. And, um, of course, the Lord forgave him. But then, after Nathan says to David, you are the man, notice what he then says. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. 
And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Remember, he, uh, he arranged for him to be put up in the front, of the front of the battle line so that he would be sure to be killed in battle. After he had him back home and was trying to get him to get with his wife uh, so that the pregnancy could be covered up by his uh, time that he spent with, it, with, with Bathsheba, but he was too faithful a soldier to do that. He says, no, I can't, I can't be with my wife. That's a privilege that I don't deserve. I need to be out on the battlefield. David stuck him out there and he got him killed in the front of the line. So he just, he compounded the sin by doing that. And then he says, now therefore, and here comes the prophetic part of this. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And you know what happened to his, with his own sons. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, now here's a real hinge point in this story, real turning point. Here the confrontation has been made, the parable has been told, now it's time for decision making, right? He could very well say, hey, I, you know, I can do what I want, I'm the king. Um, I have my rights. I do what I want to do. I do what I feel like doing. And uh, she was willing. In fact, I think probably most of it was probably her fault. You know, could say all kinds of things. He could deny it, um, reject it, exercise his power as a king. But he doesn't do that. David said to Nathan, "I have sinned against the Lord." And Nathan said to David. The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Immediate forgiveness after the confession. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Any other observations you might have? Any other principles you can... What about this secretive thing? Secretive sin. Any... Thoughts on that? Was it really secret? No. (laughs) Not in God's economy of things. If it is, he makes it public, you know. (laughs) So it's not worth the pain to get involved in something like this. Okay, anything else? That's right, he does. Yeah, Yep. good observation. And because... How about make it, stating a principle? Just because I confess my sin does not mean there won't be consequences. What every 13, 14, 15, 16-year-old young man needs to hear. 20, 25, 30, 40, 60, 70-year-old man needs to hear, right? Forgiveness of sin does not preclude consequences for the sin. It might, in God's grace, he may, you know, um, make make the issue so that a person does not have to undergo anything. But in this case, and in many other cases, um, uh, that's not the case. Okay, anything else you might see from that? Now, we spent a little more time on this, but I wanted to do that because we're, we're, we're sort of bringing some things together here. This is a parable told in a, in a situation that... Um, is is a biblical story, and you can see how parables are used. Okay, then read Galatians two eleven through twenty one, where Paul relates the time he confronted Peter over Peter's hypocrisy. Note how Paul confronted him and the way he argues his point. Won't spend too much time there, but let's very quickly look at uh, Galatians chapter two. Galatians chapter two. This is such a fascinating story to me because Paul is relating it to the Galatians who are Gentiles, who are being um, pressured by the Judaizers to 
consider themselves not quite saved unless they also uh, practice the Mosaic system, you know, keep the law and practice the rite of circumcision. This is what the Judaizers would do. They would say, oh, sure, Gentiles can be saved as long as they keep the Mosaic law and practice the rite of circumcision. Of course, Paul just went ballistic on a deal like that. He was very patient with people who were spiritually immature, but if the gospel was threatened, Paul was, all bets are off, and so he really goes after him here. And then in chapter 2, he's talking about his his past and his history and what, what he did and how God called him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And uh, and then the time that he went up to, to uh, Jerusalem, and then he says in chapter 2, verse 1, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality, those I say who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship, to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So here it comes. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, how does he approach him in his with his in his hypocrisy. Some quick observations there. Very direct. Was it private? No, he, he did it in front of everybody that was there. Basic rule of thumb, the the confrontation, or at least the, the, um, the issue, should be as public as the sin. P- Peter was sinning publicly. Uh, and so the, the confrontation was public. And the other people had to understand what was going on as well because they were involved. I think right here, this is, this is Paul's finest hour right here. I'm convinced of it. He's the last man standing. The rest of them were getting all wobbly over the gospel. If it hadn't been for Paul, there would be two churches. There would be a Gentile church and a Jewish church. And I think right here, this is his finest hour. I often wonder when I read this, you know, I confronted Peter to his face. Was Peter still wearing that sword? He's a little volatile, you know. He could pull that sword out uh, pretty quick. But Paul didn't care. But notice how he, he starts out with a question. It's just logical. How is it, you know? If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like a Jew? Very, very logical. And then... We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know, now he's going to get theological, that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. 
So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. He appeals to Peter's knowledge of the gospel. Peter knows the gospel. He just gets, he just gets hinky. He gets weak in the knees, you know, when he gets intimidated by people. Remember, he got intimidated by that little girl the night of the Lord's betrayal and just, you know, swore and I don't know him. And yet, Paul, Paul includes himself in this. We, we, we. It's not you, 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 Peter. Um, we are justified by the keeping of the law. But, he says in verse 17, if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Everything now, he's talking about himself, right? I have been crucified with Christ. And so... Then he says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Absolute masterful confrontation. It's logical. It's theological. It, it is very direct and pointed. It's right to the issue. He doesn't skirt around it and he doesn't try to, you know, save Peter's feelings or anything like that. It's, the gospel is at stake here. So anything else you see in that? Tell me, tell me how this, this is, this is working. How, how, how can this be true, Peter? This doesn't seem right to me. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's, it's indirect, but it's also direct. That's a good way to do it. Okay. Anything else you might see from that? Um, church discipline is a very important part of the church. It's, it has to be part of ministry. In fact, it's part of making disciples. It's, it's very important. And um, here we see this both Old and New Testament. And there's much more we could say about that as well. But let's move on to uh, 4. Answer the following according to Zuck chapter 9. An allegory is an extended metaphor with many points of comparison. That's true. If an allegory has a detail that is unexplained, I should make one up. No, can't do that. Though an allegory has many points of comparison, there is one main truth. One main truth. What do you think? That's true. Yeah. And remember the the part of the exhortation is don't don't try and make too much out of the parts and pieces. You know, um, try to think about the one main point in in these um, in these these things. Well, and then number five. Proverbs 5, we won't spend too much time on this, this but uh, let's, let's look just quickly at Proverbs chapter 5 for a minute. Um, what I'm trying to encourage you to do is move somewhat beyond observation, interpretation, and application, and uh, move a little bit toward the uh, exposition end of things, which is what we are doing this for. We're trying to figure out what does the Bible say so that we can become better communicators of the Word of God. So your exegesis is drawing out the meaning, but the exposition is putting it out. Uh, you're all going to have opportunities to tell other people what God says. So that's part of this whole thing. But in Proverbs 5, 15 through 23, um, we're in a section here that is just full of warnings, particularly concerning uh, young men, uh, repeatedly, my son, and again in chapter 6, my son, chapter 6, verse 20, my son. And so what it says in chapter 15, I'm sorry, chapter 5, starting in verse 15, and this is kind of getting back to David and this whole issue, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well, there are some figures of speech, right? Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. More figures of speech. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. 
Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Okay, uh, no more figures of speech there. It gets right down to the issue. Ask us and ask in the form of a question. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. So the, the issue here was to try to craft an expositional statement, uh, or maybe several. Text derived, but not text bound. A text bound statement's an exegetical statement. You're right, you're telling, you're actually saying what the text says. But an expositional statement is timeless, and even though it's text derived, it's a timeless statement. Now, verse 21 is sort of one. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. Even though it's part of the text, that's almost an expositional statement, right? Universally true, um, derived from what he's just said, but it's, it's universally true. It's a timeless statement. Anybody take a shot at that? Want to share with the class? Simon. Okay. Yeah. Universe text derived, but not text bound as an exegetical statement. Um, anybody else want to take a shot? There you go. Yeah, universally true, uh, right out of the text of Proverbs. And you can see that as you read down through here. I mean, even over in chapter 6, uh, the evil woman uh, and, and what that, the, the consequences. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Boy, there's a, there's a graphic figure of speech, right? Oh, you want to embrace a prostitute? It's like, it's like hugging a pile of hot, red hot coals. You think you can get away and not get burned? Or can walk on, can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. Okay. The warnings are there. Um, and what about this idea of secrecy? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. There it is again. There's no such thing as a secret sin. Anything else? Anybody else want to take a shot on an expositional statement? Now you can do this all through Scripture. Um, it's it's part of part of this process that we're learning to 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 do observation, interpretation, application. Um, that's true, and sort of the exposition is part of this application process to come up with a, a statement that captures the essence of what you've looked at in the text and drawn out of the text, and um, make it portable, make it memorable, that type of thing. Okay, anything else from that? Yeah. And talk about prophecy. Prophecy, prophesying, and prophesy. Great area of study, I think. Also... Probably, maybe, the most controversial area of Bible study. It's actually um, a, a watershed topic. It's going to determine uh, schools of thought. It has historically, and it, and it probably always will. But what we're going to look at this evening is that if we can take the method that we've been talking about throughout these weeks, the basic method that we apply to every other area of Scripture and simply consistently apply that to the issue of prophecy and even eschatology in Scripture, um, we're going we're gonna to wind up where God would have us be as far as understanding the meaning and applying the meaning. So really, it's, uh, it's kind of, um, you know, wash, rinse, repeat kind of a situation. It's, we're not going to change our hermeneutics because we bump up against something that doesn't fit our theological system. You can't do that. You remember that uh, quote from J.I. Packer where he said, covenant theology is our hermeneutic. Question for Dr. Packer would be, Dr. Packer, where'd you get your system? Where'd you get your theological system? You're supposed to derive your theological system from your hermeneutics not use your theological system for your hermeneutical lens. That's, that's a real issue. 
Um, and that's true of everybody. It's not just covenant theologians that can do that. Dispensational theologians can do that. And you, you're not, uh, that's not, uh, it's not legitimate. Uh, you must take your, you must derive your theological system from your hermeneutics. And your hermeneutics have to be comprehensive, congruent, consistent, and coherent. And that's another real test. Many people, many theological systems cannot be comprehensive. They just leave out massive portions of Scripture. They don't talk about it. And one of the areas they don't talk about too much is prophecy or eschatology. And the reason they don't talk about it is because they can't. Because if they did, it would disintegrate their theological system. It's just as simple as that. So, the literal method in observing prophecy. Okay, we're just going to take it and apply it to prophecy. Observation. Um, so, working definition from the Old Testament, the Hebrew Navi, prophet, um, an inspired person and an interpreter of God's will for man. The twofold meaning reflects the true meaning of a prophet. A Bible prophet is a man to whom the will of God has been revealed under inspiration in order that it might in turn be communicated to the people. We saw that with Nathan, right? Uh, God sent him to confront David, and he was functioning as a prophet, even though, as we're going to see in the uh, down below here, uh, the prophet can do a variety of things with what he tells people to do. depends on what God tells him to do. And here's a quote from Isaiah 21.10, O my trampled people and my afflicted of the threshing floor. There's a couple of great figures of speech. What I have heard from Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, I have declared to you. Pretty simple. Prophet tells people what Yahweh says. And one of my favorite characters in the Old Testament is a guy named Micaiah. You don't hear about him too much. Uh, <laughs> you like Micaiah? He just, I, read, go back and read that story. This guy is, he's a prophet of God, and he keeps telling the king what the king doesn't want to hear. And the king throws him in prison, right? So when the king, in fact, it's two kings. It's both, it's both, uh, Ahab, king of Israel, and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. They come together in a, in a sort of a coalition. And they're, they've got their court there and they're surrounded by, uh, a couple of hundred prophets of Baal. And the prophets keep telling them, yeah, go to battle. Go to battle. You're going to win. Go ahead and go to battle. But Ahab is not too sure. And he tells, go get, go get Micaiah. And Micaiah's in prison. So he's going to get drug out of prison and to come up in front of this, uh, massive crowd of people who have already told him what he wants to hear. Um, but he's just not too sure. And so they go get Micaiah. And it says, now the messenger who went to summon Micaiah spoke to him saying, behold now, the words of the prophets as if from one mouth are good towards the king. Please let your word be like the word of one of them and speak that which is good. But Micaiah said, as Yahweh lives, what Yahweh says to me, that I shall speak. That ought to be a banner on the refrigerator of every preacher in the world, especially in this country. You're going to have a prophetic ministry in the sense of not foretelling the future, but of telling people what God says right there. Even though the pressure is on to give a message that comports with all these other prophets and is going to make both the kings happy and all the rest, what Yahweh says to me, that I shall speak. That's a real prophet right there. No compromise. Okay? So, B, working definition in the New Testament. The Greek verb prophetuo, to prophesy, and then the cognate noun prophetes, to be a prophet. And here from Dr. Zuck's uh, text, to speak for or before. It's really pretty simple. You're just going to speak before or for, and you're going to tell people what God says. Simple as that. But then down at the bottom, a pretty you can see the, the broader application of this and how it, how it actually works its way out in their ministries. The prophet sees both contemporary issues and future events. His message is delivered through regular preaching and forthtelling, as well as through supernatural prognosticating and forthtelling. And I chased both those words down 
best I can tell, they mean the same thing. <laughs> okay, so I'm not sure exactly what this author, if he might be slicing the baloney kind of thin right here, but I think the best I could tell, it's pretty much the same thing, and he doesn't really tell you. He Now he, he, he goes into more definition at the bottom, of, but not of those two words. The prophetic message may concern the present in the form of warnings, rebukes, promises, and exhortations. It may concern the future through prognostications and predictions. And that's exactly what, what Nathan did, right? First thing he did was confront David in his sin. And he used that parable to do it, and it had its effect. He got the picture, and they made the application. But then there was prophetic information about what the future holds for you because you sinned. Prognostications are subdivided into predictions and apocalyptics. Predictions involve events which will happen in the near future. Apocalyptics involve events which relate to the end time. Uh, the word apocalypsis means to reveal, a revelation, which is the name of the book of Revelation, apocalypsis. While this subdivision of prophecy is justified on some occasions for purposes of emphasis, it should not be used when interpretation is under progress. Predictions and apocalyptics must not be separated during interpretation. Principles that are used to interpret near future predictions should be used to interpret far future apocalyptic prophecies. Basically what he's saying is be consistent. You don't need to make alterations in how you interpret things. Okay, so any questions or thoughts you might have on the, the basic definition of what it means to be a prophet or to prophesy? Yeah, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that passage next time because it has to do with the 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 uh, use of the old in the new because that's what Peter does there on the day of Pentecost. And yeah, it's very interesting. You know, he says this, what you're seeing these people speaking in tongues, foreign languages they hadn't learned on the day of Pentecost, this is that. Then he refers to Joel and he quotes Joel. You go back and you read that passage in Joel and it says nothing about anybody speaking in tongues. But it does talk about cataclysmic cosmic events, which are not recorded in the Acts chapter 2 chapter. So what's going on there? Um, I think what's going on as you read down through there, he talks about the various people and the work of the Spirit in their life. These are people that you may not think would be Spirit-filled people. And I think it's a picture of what the Spirit is going to do in the kingdom when the Spirit massively works through all different kinds of people in different ways. I think that's basically what's going on there. Um, it, it, it's, it's really got nothing to do with the tongues. It's the general idea of the movement of the Spirit out into areas where it hasn't been seen before. I don't know if that, that answers your question or not, but I think that's the basic idea there. In charismatic Pentecostal circles, if you say, well, um, there, there are no, there is no evidence in the text of those cataclysmic, cosmic events taking place. They would say, well, they happened, but they just weren't recorded. Uh, that doesn't work. It's not there. And, and you go back and look in Joel, and there's nothing there about anybody speaking in tongues. So there's some other, some other issues going on here. And, and I think it's, it's the, the work of the Spirit in the kingdom that is going to be massive and, and extending beyond where people think it, it would normally be. Well, I think he's doing it right now. It's just that the prophetic ministry now in telling people what God says is preaching and teaching the Word of God. But it, it is not preaching and teaching. In the Old Testament, they, would, they, had, they had new revelation um, with the close of the canon that ended that. But now we take the word of God that we have and we proclaim it to people as far and wide as we possibly can. So that that is the pro prophetic ministry uh, for our, our time. And I think that's it's going to continue on. Um, now this next section, D, um, really good book written by Michael John Beasley, The Fallible Prophets of New Calvinism. One of the phenomenons that has happened is that the argument that this prophetic gift is still in operation. Um, I know if you know who a theologian named Wayne Grudem is, good theologian. He's written some really good books and done some good work. Uh, his systematic theology is pretty good, most of it. 
There are some things in it, though, and his positions uh, have to be looked at. Um, he's a graduate of uh, Cambridge University. His PhD dissertation at Cambridge was on the continuation of the office of prophet in the church today, that type of concept. Okay. Um, then what happened was he uh, proposes, and, and his position, as far as I know, still is, that these the charismatic gifts of the Spirit are still in operation, and particularly the prophetic ministry. Now, the problem is when you hear people that are supposedly prophesying, they're, they get it wrong. But the standard in the, New Te- in the Old Testament was absolute 100% accuracy for a prophet of God. Otherwise, his life was very quickly ended. Uh, it was a capital crime. If it didn't come true, they would take him out in the parking lot to the pile of stones, and he was gone. Um, so what do they do with that? Well, they say, well, the New Testament prophets are fallible. In other words, they can make mistakes. They don't have to have that same standard. And so um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Two different standards. Yeah, boy, that is prophetic. So in, in this book, he, he really does an excellent job of showing how that is not, that can't possibly be biblically be true. Um, but what um, Wayne Grudem did then was write a book. Okay, so remember we talked about academic acceptance, academic credibility, and then you go after the popular. This is very common. You guys will see this. I've seen it over and over again with theologians. Um, they, they, they get academic credibility, and if they're not criticized or uh, excoriated in any way by other academics, then they write books and go after the, the public, the common man. Very, very common for somebody to have uh, tremendous academic credentials, and yet they have some aberration in their teaching that's not biblical. They wind up with a pulpit ministry. Look how many people they can influence with a career teaching, that kind of thing. And uh, so basically he wrote a book at the popular level that went out. And, of course, um, Pentecostalism historically hasn't had a lot of academic um, credibility, a few here and there. Gordon Fee is one very excellent commentator, but he's a Pentecostal. I remember that was a, when I was at Dallas Seminary. His, his commentary on 1 Corinthians is excellent. It was a required reading. But you know when you're reading it, even though the background information is really good and a lot of his exegesis is excellent, when you get to chapters 12, 13, and 14, he's a Pentecostal. You just have to know that's there. So you have to sort your way through this. So uh, Dr. Grudem is a, is a good conservative theologian, but he has some things in his teaching, and one of them is a continuation of these, these sign gifts that I believe many people believe, have uh, ceased to be in operation. Not all gifts. We are supposed to practice gifts to minister to the church. But you can't redefine to suit your supposed gift what the standard is for that gift, right? Um, it doesn't work that way, but that's what he tried to do. And then when, it, when he had that academic acceptability, he wrote a book that was very much accepted at the popular level. Okay, so um, this there is no such thing in the Bible as a fallible prophet. In the Old Testament, fallible prophets were identified and executed. And there's the references. In the New Testament, though, the executioner has changed. We don't execute false prophets. Um, but the standard and the penalty have not. False prophets, people that lie about the word of God and, and make it not, I'm not talking about somebody who's immature or untrained who just doesn't understand, but there are people out there who make a career out of it and a lot of money, uh, fault, false teachers. Okay. The penalty is the same. The wages of sin is still death, right? Even though we don't personally execute them. So yes, sir. Oh, he makes a prophecy that's way out in the future. It's an insurance policy. <laughs> um, well, then, then you probably wouldn't want to, you know. I, I'm not sure what they would do with him back in the Old Testament. Um, um, but there, there again, you have no way of, of plus or minus, right or wrong. You have no way of evaluating it. I mean, the only way that he, he can claim to be a true prophet is if his prophecy comes to pass. Um, 
the way we the way we test the other kind of prophecy where we tell people what the Bible says is everybody has a copy or should have. And so there's there's an objective standard right here that we can all look at and evaluate and be held accountable for. If you just say, Jesus told me it is a personal, uh, private revelation that cannot be tested. And we're told in Scripture, test all things. Hold fast to that which is good. By the way, the that is singular. That which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. There's lots of forms of evil out there, but there's only one thing that's considered good. And the context is the Word of God in that in that passage. So um, I think I think what's gone on here is they they create a category that they can fit their theology into. And that's what he that's what they've done here. Okay? Any other thoughts you might have on that? It's it's an important issue. Um, the standard in the Old Testament is absolute 100% accuracy. And even the standard in the other in those passages is if if what he says comes to pass but it leads you away from Yahweh, he's a false prophet. Okay? Might be true, whatever he said. But if it leads, if it leads the, the worshiper away from the worship of Yahweh, that makes him a false prophet. Because he's put a, he's put a barrier between the, the worshiper and Yahweh. Okay? What about the literal method in interpreting prophecy, interpretation? Well, here's a quote from Dr. Walvard, 1994. What do you predict will be the most significant theological issues over the next 10 years? His answer was, the hermeneutical problem of not interpreting the Bible literally, especially the prophetic areas. The church today is engulfed in the idea that one cannot interpret prophecy literally. Okay, Very, very key. And it's true. Uh, prophecy is, prophecy is, is a uh, watershed issue. Uh, there are those that say, well, we can't take that literally. We have to either allegorize it or spiritualize it. Uh, it can't possibly mean what it says. Because what happens there is they have a, they have a pre-existing system that tells them that, that what it says can't be true. And so they have to do something other than interpret it literally. Okay. And this is nothing new. It goes way back. This is an amillennialist named Floyd Hamilton. This is a published statement. And he actually admits that if we use a normal, literal method of interpretation of prophecy, we wind up as a premillennialist. He says, now we must frankly admit that a literal interpretation of the Old Testament prophecies gives us such a picture of an earthly reign of the Messiah as the premillennialist pictures. That was the kind of a messianic kingdom that the Jews at the time of Christ were looking for on the basis of a literal interpretation of the Old Testament promises. Okay? It's obvious that they, they admit that. He admits that. Um, J. Dwight Pentecost, in responding to that statement in his book on prophecy, great book on prophecy, says this, He is thus acknowledging that the basic difference between himself an amillennialist, and a premillennialist is not whether the scriptures teach such an earthly kingdom as the premillennialist teachers, but how the scriptures that teach just such an earthly kingdom are to be interpreted. See the point? If you just take it for what it says, you're going to wind up in the premillennial position. You don't have to start with that position. You can't. Nobody should. But if if the consistent, literal, normal interpretation of Scripture, prophecy, leads you there, okay, um, otherwise you have to come back and alter your hermeneutics because you've bumped up against an area of Scripture that doesn't fit and you wind up with conclusions that don't fit your pre-existing uh, presuppositions, which is your theological system. Right, and here's another one, Oswald T. Aulis. These men are all well-known amillennialists. The Old Testament prophecies, if literally interpreted, cannot be regarded as having been yet fulfilled or as being capable of fulfillment in this present age. In other words, they are future, and they await the return of Christ, which makes makes it a premillennial position. Okay. 
And here's a statement from Albertus Peters, published in 1934. The question of the question whether the Old Testament prophecies concerning the people of God must be interpreted in their ordinary sense as other scriptures are interpreted or can properly be applied to the Christian church is called the question of spiritualization of prophecy. This is one of the major problems of biblical interpretation and confronts everyone who makes a serious study of the Word of God. It is one of the chief keys to the difference of opinion between premillenarians and the mass of Christian scholars. The former reject such spiritualization, the latter employ it, and as long as there is no agreement on this point, the debate is interminable and fruitless. 1934, he said that. Okay, so that's really what's at stake here is how do you interpret everything in the Bible, but then do you alter somehow your interpretive principles because you bump up against this portion of Scripture that doesn't fit your theological uh, presuppositions unless you alter your interpretive principles. And so for the last two months, we've been talking about consistency, right? That's just really critical. If you have to change the rules in order to in order to arrive at a certain theological conclusion, that's a tell. That's a tell that your system is governing how you approach Scripture. It's a presupposition that shouldn't be there. So any thoughts that you might have on that? The football game comes down to the end, and one team is behind by six points. They have the ball. It's two-minute warning. Timeout is called by the, by the ref. Two minutes. Two-minute warning. And he gets out there in the field, and he says, uh, would the timekeeper please add two minutes more to the clock? People would say, what? What are you doing? Got down to the end here, and you're changing the rules? Well, yeah, they're behind by six points, and they worked hard to get here. Can't we add another couple of minutes onto the clock here, change the rules a little bit? Right? Ridiculous, right? That would never happen. And yet, how is it we can change rules of interpretation once we bump up against it an area of Scripture? We talked about um, Dr. Thomas and that little quote. You can go back a few weeks ago and see that he called it genre override. Genre. You come up against a certain genre of liter or literature, a kind of literature in Scripture, and now that, oh, because you can't interpret it and come out at the conclusions you want, you let that override your interpretive principles and uh, change how you how you read scripture okay you can't do that okay you can't do it legitimately even though a lot of people do it okay literal method in interpreting prophecy um principles for interpreting prophecy this is from uh dr zuck page 241 249 what do we do well we use the normal hermeneutical principles the historical, grammatical, literary, and I always like adding the word contextual. That's kind of how I learned it. Those were four key issues that were part of the interpretive thing. Uh, but we have, we have decided early on that we're just going to call this the literal method. But it includes the historical evaluation, grammatical. We look at the grammar. We look at the literature, what kind of literature it is. We don't let that override our interpretive principles, but we do take into account figures of speech and so on. B, we take words of prophecy in their normal grammatical sense, just like we do every place else. We consider the literary element which recognizes figurative and symbolic language. We view prophecy through the Christotelic lens. Okay, In other words, he's coming back to reign on the earth. Uh, remember, we looked at the Christotelic, the idea that telos or end or purpose that everything moves toward. That's the idea of the Christotelic, that everything moves toward the person and work of Jesus Christ coming back and, and exercising his sovereign rule over his creation, which is the theme of the Bible, the kingdom of God or the sovereign rule of God over his creation. And then we recognize the principle of foreshortening. Now, we're going to talk about this more next time. This is the idea that you go into the Old Testament, and there are certain passages where you look at, you look at the statements, and they're, real, they're close together, and 
you read that, and what it's telling you is, when you understand it from progressive revelation later on, you are looking at two different events, okay? Classic one is uh, uh, Zechariah 10, 9, and 10, okay? Um, you're looking at the two advents of Christ, but they're just like this. They're one right after the other. And uh, what you can't really see in the text and what they couldn't see is the time distance between them. Because one of them is the first coming of Christ. Talks about he's going to ride in on the colt of a donkey, right? But then the next one talks about that he's going to come and bring universal peace to the whole planet. Well, he never did that at his first coming. Another one is a well-known Christmas statement that we talk about from Isaiah. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Okay? But then it says, and the government will be upon his shoulders. He will be called wonderful. All of that statement, that never happened at his first advent. So this is the idea of foreshortening. We're going to talk about it more next time. Um, it's also called double reference. Double reference. And there is no such thing in the Bible. I'm convinced as double. Some people talk about a double fulfillment because they see two things. They say, well, there's two fulfillments. I don't think there is double fulfillment. What it is is a double reference, okay? There's two separate prophecies that extend down through time. One of them is fulfilled in the short term, and the other one is the long term, because one's the first coming, and the other one's the second coming. So, but, but in the Old Testament, they're right, one right after the other. They're in the same block of Scripture. And then look for interpretations within Scripture itself. Don't import things from the outside. G, compare parallel passages. We would do that. Um, one warning is, though, uh, it's very common for people to say, well, yeah, we wanna, we're going to take this passage, we're going to bring the meaning and interpret this passage from this passage. Each individual passage must make its own contribution. So it's okay to compare passages after you've exegeted each individual passage. You can get into these situations, and I've heard these guys, where you say, well, where did you get that meaning? And they say, well, I got it from this passage and this passage over here. And you say, well, where did you get this one? Well, I got that one from over here and over here and over here. And I got this one from over here and over here. And it's like an infinite regression. But they never exegete the individual passages and then compare their results. This is this is the way to go about doing it. Otherwise, you're just... You can import whatever you want onto that passage. Compare parallel passages after you've done the exegesis for each individual passage. And then, determine if prophecies are fulfilled or unfulfilled. It kind of goes back to the idea of foreshortening, you know. Um, wait a minute, I'm looking at something here that hasn't happened yet. This part of it I can see has happened, but the other part hasn't. And um, again, basic prophecy, is it actually been fulfilled or not? So it's something to, to think about and look at. So we're talking about the chronology and also having to take into account the idea of progressive revelation. What did they know? What could they know? And when did they know it? We talked about Luke 24 and the way Jesus confronted the disciples. He said, you are slow. And say so you don't believe anything. He just said, you're slow to believe all that the prophets said. And the two the two issues were the the uh, the suffering and the glory. Okay, they got the glory part right. You know, the king and the the uh, the triumphal king and how he's going to come and and judge the nations and judge the Gentiles and kick the Gentile occupiers out of Jerusalem and Israel and all the rest. That was good news. They wanted that. That's what they saw. But what they couldn't see, didn't see, uh, was the suffering part. They couldn't see the cross. And so um, he had to he had to correct him on that. So progressive revelation is very important. It's there, and we need to take it into account. And we can't assume that they knew more than they did until until Isaiah chapter fifty three. They wouldn't have had an idea of the, that this Messiah would die for their sins. Okay, that was seven hundred B.C. Prior to that, all those centuries, they had no idea that the Messiah was going to die for their sins. Okay. Um, so, any thoughts you might have on that or questions? I'm going to let you look at page 43 on your own. What I did there, I just took Jeremiah 3, 6 through 25, and went through a list, the list there of what 
prophecy does and just applied it to Jeremiah 3. Reminds of the past and so on. And that, and Jeremiah as the prophet does that all the way through there. And you can just walk your way through that. I'm going to let you do that on your own. And one of the main things of prophecy is that prophecy is designed to encourage us. Okay. Apostle Paul says that to the Thessalonian Christians down at the bottom there. Then we who are alive and remain, he's just talked to about, about the rapture of the church. Uh, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the air, Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Prophecy and what's a look into eschatology in the future is supposed to be a comfort for the Christian, and that's how we should look at it, and we should draw that out of the prophecies. Okay? Anything else you might... Uh, any thoughts you might have or questions? This is a massive area, guys. I know that. I mean, in, in, in all these areas, we've, we've really opened up some big boxes of information. But our purpose, remember, was not to um, do exposition of every single passage dealing with this stuff, but to, to get a set of tools in place so that when you do come across these things in Scripture, then you'll have a set of tools you can apply consistently uh, all the way through without having to alter how you interpret various passages and various uh, kinds of Scripture, including prophecy. Okay? Um, that's the good news. Well, this is good news. you got a homework assignment for next week, okay? Another homework assignment. Check out Shepherd's Conference Media, 2007 Shepherd's Conference, it's online. You can download these. If you can't download them and you and you want a copy, I can probably run you a copy of the text. I think they might have the text. 2007 Shepherds Conference, okay? The first address, General Session 1, keynote by Pastor MacArthur, really, really good. He talks about the area of prophecy, and it's it's very good. It's Personally, it's one of my favorite messages of John MacArthur. I think it's John MacArthur at his finest. It's also John MacArthur at his funniest. Okay, he is—he's just hilarious in this. And the second one is uh, in that same conference, but it's seminar session four. Dr. Bill Barrick, he was one of the Old Testament profs, just an exceptional Old Testament scholar. Did you have him for anything? He—he he was just really, really good Old Testament scholar. He gives a, uh, uh, to some, one of the seminar breakout or seminar sessions on Thy Kingdom Come. I hadn't listened to it for two or three years. And then I just called it back and listened to it this week. And I was surprised to hear, you will, you will recognize so many of the things that we've talked about. And he's talking about how do we interpret the Old Testament kingdom promises. Okay. Which are prophetic promises. So uh, I think you'll you'll be edified by that. And uh, he just does an, an incredible job with it. He's an excellent Old Testament scholar, but he's also an excellent theologian. So what he's going to do? He's going to put the Old Testament and the New Testament together for you like that. And uh, he's uh, really really good. Both of those are good messages. So I think you'll you'll recognize much of what we've been talking about. He even met, he even mentions a chiastic structure in Revelation. Okay. So that chiastic structure is uh, part of the picture there. So take a look at those and uh, we can talk about it a little bit next time. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.